welcome to episode 34 of Super Entertainment Presents the Television Crossover Universe on the Grand Gignol Network. Coming to you from Castle Wolfenstein, hosted by the TVCU crew. Joining me are the classy one, James Boyachuk, CEO of 18th Wall Productions, and the pun master, Chris Nigro, author and founder of Wild Hunt Press. And I am the networker, the Robert Ironsky, professional geek and creepy weirdo. And we are the TVCU crew. The TVCU crew are a team of crossovers who devote way too much of their time to connecting the dots through official crossovers and Easter eggs in order to demonstrate a shared fictional reality that we call the television crossover universe. And uh, Ivan couldn't be with us tonight. He is at a Christmas party, and that's actually a real thing. Uh, I couldn't make up anything weirder than that. Um, <laughs> with the heat miser, cold miser, and skinny Santa. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so let's go to our shameless plugging segment. Uh, we'll start with you, Chris. What do you got for shameless plugging? Well, I was thinking of recording a rendition of Jingle All the Way in honor of what Ivan's doing today. <laughs> but since I suck so much as a singer, I will simply say um, once more, um, I just got my second of two novels, which is Moonstalker, A Night in Buffalo, as in uh, Night with a Sword, Not an Evening. Um, nearly completed, and once again, I will warn the public, Centurion and Moonstalker are on their way towards an imminent publication. Cool. I like to think so. So does my grandmother. (laughs) Well, that's all the endorsement you need, right? (laughs) As far as she's concerned. All right. Uh, James, how about you? What do you have to plug? All right. Well, first, I have to plug the June release in Science of Deduction, our monthly Sherlock Holmes novella series. Mm. And this time, it is Lisa and Gina Gomez's Moriarty's final problem. Turns out, Reichenbach Falls isn't where you want to go and kill someone if you want them to stay dead. Professor Moriarty has returned in the days before World War I to have his final vengeance. He will kill everyone associated with Holmes. Watson will be in prison for the crime, and Holmes will be beaten once and for all. Or will he? This is one of my... This is a fun release in the series. It completely goes at things from a right angle, with a clearly deranged, mentally broken Moriarty. The fall shattered his mind, and he's desperately trying to come up with one last plot on the level of his old plots to defeat his old enemies. So it's a very unique take on the subject matter. And for my shameful plug... I would like to raise, what was it? I actually had a specific thing in mind for once, and I cannot remember what it was. So instead, I am going to shamefully plug the book that's sitting right by my side, which is Witness by Whitaker Chambers. And I just started reading it. It's a in-depth look at the Alger Hiss case from one of the main participants. And I have to say that the foreword, which is a letter to the writer's children and grandchildren, is one of the most powerful, touching works of prose I've ever read in my life. So for that alone, you owe it to yourself to go down to Barnes & Noble, pick it up, and read the first 20 pages. And cool. that's all my plugs. I, I gotta say that uh, the Revenge of Moriarty story there um, is really, really intriguing. I'm looking forward to that. And, um, alright, so my, my plugs. Um, first, um, I have I gotta say, I, I haven't listened to uh, Trick or Treat Radio in the last few weeks because uh, I'm working at a fast food franchise <laughs> on, in my other other life, um, as featured on Community. 
And um, <laughs> so, um, but but I but I know they've been having um, air conditioning problems there. I haven't been in the studio for a while myself because I'm having vehicle problems. But I know it's really really hot there. Um, they have a crowdfunder going. Uh, we're participating in that crowdfunder. So look at the rewards. Um, you can you can uh, manipulate our show and uh, make us do different things to uh, entertain you. <laughs> so uh, if 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 you if you pay up, um, so please do so. Um, the air conditioning doesn't just save the people in the studio, but it also saves the equipment because um, uh, you know computers and stuff shouldn't get too hot. Um, bad things can happen, and then all of the shows on the network would crash, um, and that would be bad. Um, so please support that, and you can go to trickortreat.com or or go to um, um, find Trick or Treat Radio on on Facebook or or the Deadites on Twitter and 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 look for their crowdfunder. Uh, also, um, I promise I've only got like four more of these. Uh, we went to Scarecon a while ago, and I promised everybody that I got cards from that I would promote them on the show, and I've been doing it one per week so that it wouldn't uh, be too much all at once. Um, so this week I'm going to talk about a great guy I met um, who you guys might be familiar with named Butch Patrick. Uh, Butch Patrick uh, is famous for having played Eddie Munster on the classic television series The Munsters. Um, and he's also a really nice guy. Um, so I got to talk to him a little bit, and... Um, He's he's promoting his website monsters.com. Um, so I would I would say check that out if you're a classic television fan. Um, please check it out, and it also talks about where else you can see him and um, and uh, get to meet him. So that's it for my shameless plugging. Uh, so stay tuned because after the commercial break. We'll be talking to author Micah C- Micah S. Harris for his third appearance on our show. Uh, that's that's the first time we've had three people on our show, and of course, last time Micah was on was the first time we had two people on <laughs> the same person on twice in a row. So uh, so that's really awesome that Micah's been keeps coming back. Uh, he must really really like us. Um, so we'll be right back after this message. Okay, we are back. So, today's guest is Micah S. Harris. Micah has twice been on our show now, and both of his episodes earn our top ten highest played shows. Uh, Micah happens to also be a favorite author among us at this show, and so it was wonderful when Micah said he'd love to come back on again. So, welcome back, Micah, uh, to our show. Great to have you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Uh, so, so we're gonna we're gonna jump right in. Uh, uh, I, first, I want to talk about the Eldritch New Adventures of Becky Sharp. It's recently Great. been re, it's been re released. Uh, uh-huh. So, what what prompted the re release? Well, um, Becky, the Eldritch New Adventures of Becky Sharp came out back uh, in two thousand eight in print, and uh, at that time. Um, if there was digital publishing, I was not aware of it. Uh, so uh, Becky was out for a while, and uh, you know she she sold rather steadily, uh, and then you know things began to trickle down with sales, um, and so you know I 
removed her from circulation uh, a couple, maybe four years ago, come to think of it. I was having some health issues, and, uh, you know, it was just something I didn't care to bother with. Uh, but having said that, I mean, Becky found an audience, and uh, she was, I think, uh, one of the more popular things that I've done. I've noticed that uh, the people who do uh, enjoy my take on the character uh, seem to be uh, intellectual people, uh, which is, you know, always, uh, you know, nice. Uh, we'll take the compliment. Uh, right. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, just pat yourselves on the back there. <laughs> And uh, and so that's always pleasing, you know, to get that. In fact, uh, a, a you know, I'm just really flattered that a big fan of Becky Sharp is uh, Mark Schultz, uh, mm. the creator of uh, Xenozoic Tales, aka Cadillacs and Dinosaurs. And uh, he, uh, you guys know my reference here, where I'm talking. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I know because it's been a while since those books were were out. Um. But, uh, you know, he's done a lot of things. Uh, well, I used to write for DC Comics. Um, was writing one of the Superman titles. Now he writes the Prince Valiant strip, uh, the Sunday strip. And uh, he did an illustrated book, uh, Storms at Sea, which you guys may want to check out if you're not familiar with it, because there are crossovers in that book. And... Um, he, uh, but anyway, Mark uh, illustrated the first volume of the uh, Bantam, uh, Conan the Barbarian uh, reprints. And anyway, you know, it's just uh, he's a Becky Sharp fan, and enjoys, as I said, he enjoys my take on the character. And I spoke to him a few weeks ago, and he was asking me, you know, if I had another Becky story coming. And uh, so, you know, that's like I said, that's really flattering. Um, you know that, that he cares, or that anybody cares, as a matter of fact. Um, so you know that she found her audience. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say. Well, the character is awesome, no doubt. I'm not surprised you have a fan there. I may have you beat though, Micah, because my the fans of my work tend to be hobos. Well, they're hobos. <laughs> so, so you're pretty uh, you're pretty keen down there by the tracks, passing a cup of Joe and a. You know, bowl of soup around, huh? I'm popular in all the shanties. <laughs> all the shanties. <laughs> so I'd like to follow well, up on. Um, I'd like to follow up on um, Mark Schultz' question to you. Um, will we see more Becky Sharp? Uh, well, that's in the plans. Uh, not immediately, but I'm hoping. I'm working on the tales of the Shadow Man story now. Uh, with uh, not with Becky. Uh, but she initially appeared there, and she's made uh, two or three other appearances, or three or four other appearances in that anthology. So I'm thinking of bringing her back for 2017 for Tales of the Shadow Man. And uh, I finally have got an idea that I think I can, you know, work with. Uh, I'm getting a bit of cold feet now because I'm afraid of letting my public down. Uh, <laughs> and not being able to come through uh, with an entertaining story, but hopefully inspiration will will strike. But you were asking why, uh, you know, why now uh, in the digital edition? Um, as I said, I pulled Becky from circulation, and holy cow! I mean, prices on Amazon are nuts—hundreds uh, of dollars, you know, for 
a copy of the book. And at one time, you know, they were, somebody had it for two thousand plus dollars. You know, and that's just ridiculous. Oh. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, I think it's a good book, but you know, come on, uh, that's that's pretty. You know, that, that nobody's going to read that book. <laughs> nobody's going to. If they do, you know, they're having it slabbed at Mile High Comics or whatever. You know, never touch it. Uh, yeah. And put it in a safety deposit box and cryogenic freezing, <laughs> you know, for the, you know, put it on the stock market for that matter. And, uh, you know, so I wanted to get her back out there. There had been a lapse in time. And, uh, you know, so maybe now was the time to expose Becky to some new readers, you know, who may not have been following New Pulp uh, when I wrote the book uh, a while back now, when it first came out eight years ago. And um, so hopefully, you know, there are people now rediscovering uh, the book in the electronic format. Uh, it's much cheaper than $2,000, uh, a mere two ninety nine. Always a great selling point. Yes, yes, a uh, mere two ninety nine. Uh, it is the first electronic edition. Uh, there are some mild alterations in some, uh, well, in, in, in a certain character's name. Uh, at the time I did Becky Sharp originally, I thought in all good conscience that the character was in the public domain, and I really think the character is still. But there is some legal stuff in the past that you know that I thought was well, not worth <laughs> you know messing with that. Everybody will know who he is, and so uh, it was easy enough to change and and and, and uh, you know make that consistent and uh, in the in the text and. But other than that, you know, it is the same the same story. Uh, it's still, you know, one of my favorite things that I've that I've written. Uh, it, uh, like I said, it's been a long time ago. Uh, it began as a uh, long story that I sent to realms of fantasy. Uh, you guys familiar with that magazine? Which magazine? Realms Realms of Fantasy. No, I'm not. No, I don't believe so. Uh, Oh really? Yeah. Well, yeah. It's uh, it's been a while since I've seen a copy, but it was a beautiful magazine, uh, slick paper and fantasy fiction, beautiful painted illustration, and I submitted Becky there to them, and uh, the guy sent me back a rejection, complimenting me on my writing, uh, <laughs> but you uh, know, neglected to you know to you know to buy my story in the process of his admiration. Uh, and so then I decided, okay, I'll expand it. And uh, then I had an author, uh, an author. I had an offer uh, to uh, write for Tales of the Shadow Man, and I came up with a story uh, that became a chapter in the novel. And it expanded, and uh, I was able to, uh, you know, to self-publish. And um, I got my friend uh, Lawson Wallace. Uh, to do the illustrations, and uh, he did a great job, and um, and and there there it was, um, and uh, you know like I said I'm very proud uh, of the of the overall uh, effort uh, of and talent that that went into that book. Uh, you know I just wish more people had had seen it, and I hope maybe now more will at the low low price of two ninety nine. So I, you know, to pick up on something you said earlier about exposing okay. Becky Sharp, I have a story I don't think I ever told you. 
Okay. Now, this is going to expose my age to pretty much all the audience, but when the book first came out and I got a copy, I was still in high school. And I decided the best thing I could do was to read this between classes. Now, for readers, now for listeners who aren't aware, on the cover is a particularly busty woman in a particularly yeah. low-cust dress. Yeah, just, just, just my the way I like them, by the principal's way. eyes bugged out. What are you reading? Is that what you meant by exposing? What are you reading? Is that boring? <laughs> and I had to explain to her that no, it was not, in fact, adult reading material. <laughs> you really meant it when you said you were exposing Becky. <laughs> Did you assure that it was totally sophomoric material? No, in fact, I convinced her it was literature. Oh, I mean, after great. all, it is a sequel to one of the most famous novels. Right. That's right. Vanity Fair. Now, I appreciate, so, you know, Thackeray putting all that work in the prequel to my book. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so, for for our listeners, uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about Becky Sharp on the show and in our website. But for those who aren't familiar with Vanity Fair and Becky Sharp... Could you tell us a little bit about who Becky Sharp is and why she's such an interesting character to write about? Well, um, F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, when Gone with the Wind was still just a novel, um, said that he felt that Scarlett O'Hara was derived from Becky Sharp. So, you know, a lot more people today know Scarlett O'Hara than Becky Sharp, although at one time that wasn't the case. Uh, Vanity Fair was a classic that uh, was read, uh, most likely read in high schools, uh, alongside Charles Dickens, who was Thackeray's contemporary and rival. And uh, Becky Sharp was very well known, um, and at one time she was as well known as, as Scarlett O'Hara, O'Hara, but now, uh, you know, that has changed, and most people know Vanity Fair is simply a fashion magazine. Uh not one of the great novels of the 19th century, and uh, certainly, you know, not from taking its title from Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, they don't know that illusion is either. Uh, so, unfortunately, it's drifted into somewhat of, you know, a bit of obscurity. So that's my thumbnail, you know, quick uh, definition of Becky Sharp's character. Imagine Scarlett O'Hara with a, you know, British accent. <laughs> or a French accent. Uh, imagine that kind of character, uh, but then make her worse by a few degrees. Right. Yeah, Becky is really amoral um, in, in her actions and in you know the way that she lives. And you know, she it's implied that she murdered one of the characters in the book. And I don't think Scarlett O'Hara ever went that far. Um, but, you know, Becky can be, be ruthless. And to be fair, uh, she's coming up uh, from nothing. Uh, she is teaching French in a prestigious girls' school where she's just the hired help. And uh, she has no connections. Uh, she has no name or title or anything to recommend her. And so, you know, she does what she has to uh, to get ahead. Uh, and... Again, she's not the nicest character in the world, which is what makes her so much fun to write. Uh, the fact that you know she has no problem, uh, you know, with throwing 
uh, you know, if, if if you and Becky are on Skull Island and you're being chased by a dinosaur, huh. you know, and she realizes that she doesn't have to run faster than the dinosaur, she only has to run faster than you. Right. Uh, you're probably you're probably going to trip and fall at her instigation as she speeds merrily along. You know, nothing personal. Um, so yeah, so she can be she can be ruthless. Um, and I, but I did try in my um, in my version of her to give her some more dimension and uh, to soften her a tad, but not too much. Because a repentant, nice Becky Sharp would not be interesting to write or to read, or at least or as much fun. But she does lose some of her uh, sociopathic <laughs> sense uh, to that. She does make certain connections with certain characters in the book uh, that she actually does care for. Uh, including uh, her daughter that she has, the baby that she has, and the father of the daughter. Uh, it was recently the subject of a, you know, rather big movie. Uh, just, just, just still in the theaters today. Right, right, uh, right. Yeah, a legendary. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the legendary Eugenides. <laughs> you know, as a, they have to use a, you know, it's just like Burroughs tells you at the beginning of Tarzan. You know, all these names are made up. Right. Uh, this is this is not this is not real. So Eugenides, which translates either into well born or good genes, uh, you know, is a speaking of Eugenides, he's uh, active in the eighteen nineties, which is one of the few characters that you put in a different time period than their original author intended. Now, was yeah. this to avoid legal issues, or perhaps are readers meant to assume this Lord of the Jungle is the time-lost Tarzan from Philip Jose Farmer's Time's Last Gift? Now, feel free to answer in grunts if you're afraid yes. <laughs> well, I will have to say that I do not remember why I did it that way to start with, uh, except maybe I did want too big of a leap. Uh, the next section of the story... Uh, jumps to 1925, um, you know, or it could have just been out of out of ignorance. Uh, I, I don't know. I did regret doing that until <laughs> I did learn of this Philip Jose Farmer uh, variation. And um, I actually, I don't know if the guys remember this or not, but uh, I actually put this forward to, uh, to, to Wynn Eckerd if he thought that, you know, my Eugenides could be uh, the character uh, from Time's Last Gift. And uh, he said, yeah, he thought he could. And I was very pleased that the Sean Lee Levins, are you guys familiar with Sean? Yes, yep. Yes. You know, you know this weekend he's debuting his uh, his book. Oh, is that uh, this two, weekend? Yeah, these two volumes mm-hmm, at the Pulp, uh, Pulp Convention, uh, Farmer Con. Uh, where he's done, you know, took on the incredible task of following up Wynn Eckert's, you know, great pair of books that he did on crossovers. And uh, all these literary and popular fiction, you know, character crossovers. And uh, so Sean, I give him a shout-out for his book. I certainly plan to get my copies. Yeah, me too. uh, I just wrote it down. (laughs) Yeah, and if it's... And if it's like, uh, you know, if it's like Wynn's book, you know, Wynn's book was like, you know, what it's about potato chips. You can't start with one 
you know, right. you, you start reading one entry, you have to keep going on and on. And uh, but anyway, Sean uh, Levins picked up on this, and again, I was very pleased with that. That uh, you know, hey, Eugenides, you know, uh, seems like he's John Gribertson, you know. And uh, so, yeah, you know, I, I, that, 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 that has become my feeling. That's the official feeling now. Uh, that, that would be great, because in, in the first volumes, they had placed your story in the um, alternate universe section. But uh, it sounds like maybe uh, Sean's going to move it to the main timeline. That would be awesome. Yeah, that's kind of interesting, because he did, he put up a, um, he put up an entry. It must have been on my Ravenwood book. And he, uh, because, you know, Becky's daughter is the heroine uh, of Ravenwood, uh, Return of the Duck Pump. Uh, she's also the heroine of my Jim Anthony novella, uh, the, uh, on the periphery of legend in The Hunters. The two-parter are the you know, two-novella uh, book that I did with Josh Reynolds. And uh, so it must have been how he connected on to that Um uh, and, and that's when he mentioned it. Now, that would be great, you know. My thought, though, has been that the Gribertson, um, who is Eugenides, who is Grace Toke, right? Um, that at the moment that uh, well, now here I'm I'm alluding to Time's Last Gift. Uh, you know, that at the moment of time travel. Um, you know, there were variants uh, into various timelines, you know, of Gribertson. Right. There were more. And so he, in my head, he fit into Becky's universe by being one of these variants, these alternative Gribertsons. Mm. Um, but, you know, I'm all for bringing him into the, you know, uh, farmer universe as long as it doesn't hamstring me too much. Because <laughs> there's a lot right. of... You know things going on. I know the uh, the Star Wars guys. Uh, you know, and I understand it. You know, the, the, with Disney taking over the Star Wars franchise, they've you know pretty much uh, you know decided that uh, they're not going to be bound. You know, like the three trillion Star right, right. Wars novels. You know, <laughs> that have been written and having not being hamstrung into that. So you know, I wouldn't want to be hamstrung, but you know, it's it like, is a it's nice like, idea. It's like I say when I include stories in the television crossover universe. Just because I include their stories in my universe doesn't mean that the authors are going to suddenly think they have to uh, adhere to my rules. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know oh, just, yeah. just yeah, because true. you become part of uh, the Wold Newton universe or the crossover universe doesn't mean you have to write every story to, to, to fit it. Um, of course, it always works out better for, for some of us fans when, when it just works out that way, but... You know, it's more about yeah. your, arti- your own artistic vision, you know? Well, something I, I noticed along those lines, and speaking of the latest Tarzan movie, which we were doing in not such veiled tones, um, I noticed that it takes place in 1890. So I was thinking, hmm, that Eugenides? Mm, <laughs> I accept right? All this great. But then Eugenides is married to... Uh, well, actually, Odette this is Saint in the Claire. 1870s, so there's still time for this wife to die and him to marry the wife <laughs> in her book. But, no, actually, I, th- I really thought it was 1890, because I remember there being some reference to that in 1888. Uh, I haven't seen yeah. it yet, but I know it's supposed to take place during the Belgian genocide, which is in the 1870s. Huh. Wow. 
That's interesting. I prefer I the know, uh, genocides. Oh, sorry. But if you but if you're right, I mean, but yeah, that that works out great for me. You know, history <laughs> it works in my favor. Um, and uh, you know, he uh, I mentioned this to uh, Win Eckert, and it's been so long ago. I don't know that he remembers this exchange of emails. And I said, well, you know, if he's got another, you know, wife of uh, and that will, you know, if that would cross over with his other self being married to Jane or Jane being alive. And, and uh, Wynn said that he didn't think Robertson was too worried about, you know, monogamy. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, mm. yeah. But anyway, uh, you know, it could certainly be that uh, in my head, too, I think I had planned to kill off Odette. Uh, you know, so he would not be uh, a bigamist. Uh, <laughs> if that would count, you know, <laughs> right? Seeing that he's, you know, I'm a parallel uh, person. Uh, I don't know how that would hold up in court. <laughs> uh, if, if you both appeared in court at the same time, I guess there'd be some kind of fracture. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. We can't have you appear, but uh, but yeah. So you know, I could still I could still work it out. I've I've actually I mean I'll tell you I've actually had a story in mind uh, for years now, and I don't know if I ever do it or not. But uh, there are a couple of Becky Sharp stories that would kind of you know put a bow on things uh, and wrap them up. Uh, one would be to take place during Collins Rampage in New York. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I thought of having a family reunion there at that time between Becky and her child and her, the child's father. And uh, then I thought of a, uh, also of a story taking place in the 1960s because I haven't gotten Becky too far into the 20th century. And, uh, you know, I really wanted to get her into the miniskirt era there on Carnaby Street. And uh, I wanted to, you know again, actually have Eugenity soften, uh, you know, toward her. And then something happens, and, uh, you know, Becky makes a, a noble sacrifice on his behalf. But mm-hmm. to him, it looks like total betrayal. So, um, so yeah, you know, I've, like I said, I've had some story ideas. None of the one, but the idea for Tales of the Shadow Man uh, in 2017, uh, that, uh, or 2018, uh, that has... It's, it's neither one of those. This is something relatively brand new. Okay, to dig into this a little bit more in depth. The char- chapters with your Tarzan analog are among my favorites in the book. It feels like Becky has stepped into another fully formed world. So what inspired you to send your jungle lord up against one of Lovecraft's nastiest elder gods? Because it oh, works so well. Well, well, thank you. Uh, I think I just wanted to see Tarzan fight a mummy. (laughs) I mean, that's a fantastic answer. That was what I had (laughs) not known I wanted to see. (laughs) Yeah, I I really like that scene. I wish you had made it into the illustration. You know, I wanted it to. Um, But, uh, yeah, you know, it just sort of, uh, it, it 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 just worked. Uh, it, it, it dove, you know, it dovetailed very nicely, 
and uh, and, and and thanks for the kind words. I'm, I'm glad you felt that it fits so well, and you know, seemed like a unified world there. Excellent. So in the final chapter of the book, Becky and some of Ernest Hemingway's wastrels are embroiled in the final act of H.P. Lovecraft's The Call of Cthulhu. So how did you choose these particular characters, and how difficult slash interesting was it to entwine your work so thoroughly with another author's? Uh, it wasn't really, it wasn't difficult. Uh, I'm, I'm a fan of that period. Uh, you know, I'm not the biggest Woody Allen uh, fan, but the last two movies he's done set in the 1920s, uh, I've enjoyed. Uh, and one of those, one of those had Ernest Hemingway in it. Uh, was it Paris After Midnight? Um, you know what I'm referring to? I haven't seen his newer work. <laughs> I like his newer work. Okay. Well, the last two, the two set in the 20s have been good, especially the last one, uh, where Colin um, Colin Firth was playing a kind of Houdini-type magician who was a debunker, and uh, Emma Stone was this alleged, you know, spiritualist, and he was there to debunker, and, uh, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun, but... Um, like I say, I'm a fan of that period. I'm a fan of the of the early 1930s, and then in the 20s and the modernist movement in writing um, and art uh, is very intriguing to me. I'm a big T.S. Eliot fan, at least of the Wasteland, uh, and so you know I, I've read that stuff and kind of immersed myself into the mindset of it. I guess that it wasn't you know really that uh, that hard. Um, and, uh, you know, Robert and, uh, Khan and Jake Barnes were, you know, very, uh, you know, familiar to me. Uh, I wrote a paper on them back in grad school, uh, basically putting forth the thesis that Huck and, and Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn were the basis for those two characters. Oh, and their no, that's interesting. Yeah, and how they contrasted with each other, one who's the romantic and one who's the, the realist and... Um, and Hemingway was a big, you know, Huck Finn fan, um, and so uh, so anyway, yeah. So they just came rather, you know, naturally to me. They they were interesting uh, to give them their moment, and I was happy to put them in the bistro with Becky Sharp for a few paragraphs. Okay. So at the end of the novel, Becky says, "Could there be an occasion for the world to hear of me again?" Only on my own uh, terms. And so on. You may be compelled to own me as queen, but my seduction is sweet and I can be a kind mistress. So, uh, while we weren't paying attention, has Becky Sharp taken over the world? Yeah. <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, that's a very, very good question, you know. Uh, she's the head of the Illuminati, man. I mean, uh, huh. Jay-Z, Beyonce, they're all falling I'm up taking like this as canon. Man. No backseats. <laughs> That's right, <laughs> but uh, but I get you know that, uh, maybe you know her uh, she had a, a a bit higher aspiration, <laughs> you know having faced down Cthulhu and come out on top, she might have been just a little full of herself <laughs> at that moment. Right. <laughs> uh, but all but all the on the other hand, you know she may uh, she may be pulling the strings. Uh, Actually, in my head, I had her retired to Bath, North Carolina, uh, where she was uh, living with uh, uh, Captain Clegg, uh, who, uh, if you remember from the novel, is sort of exiled 
uh, outside of space and time. Oh, yes. Uh, I remember you had a few blog updates from her life there. Right, right, right. Back in the days of MySpace. (laughs) Becky never made it to Facebook, but she was on MySpace. And uh, so the idea was that she had found a way to rescue him. Uh, that had been that ended up being set up in my and Matthew Bow's collaboration in Tales of the Shadow Man, the Fox and the Scorpion, and um, in which Becky, um, you know, finds uh, you know the the hidden uh, uh, Tibetan uh, you know palace or world where. Uh, all these great advances in uh, in technology are way ahead, you know, of the outside world. And uh, she discovers uh, Borges Aleph there, and uh, that point where that intersects with all other points in time and space. And she had a few visions, um, and uh, then she, uh, you know, was. Uh, uh, I guess stored that in her head because I figured, well, that's a way she could maybe reach uh, her lost love and uh, rescue him. Of course, that's never happened. And let me tell you, you know, why I'm speaking here? Why yeah. I'm speaking here? You are you you are witnessing, as it were, creativity as it happens. Huh. Uh, because yeah, because I just realized something, <laughs> and that to. That could lead into my next uh, the, the story for Becky that I'm planning next that I have not forgotten because one of the things that she sees in that story I did with Matt is when she's standing in that Aleph, she sees the cave uh, where John Carter uh, in the oh, novel oh. yeah was was taken up along with that. To me, it's one of the greatest moments in fantastic fiction. Uh, precisely because it's unexplained, and of course the movie just totally simplified it. You know, mm-hmm. it's, oh, it's terrible. But the uh, although I'm not really that down on the movie, but that that I thought was come on. But uh, if you if you're familiar with the book, uh, Carter uh, becomes paralyzed and he's facing the mouth of the cave, and these uh, the uh, Native Americans that have been you know running after him. Uh, look in and see something behind him that frightens them. And, you know, he makes a statement, I wouldn't know what it was, you know, for a long time. And then finally, when his astral body travels from Mars and, and comes back, and he looks around, and there's this withered-up mummy, this woman, you know, like, like an Indian shaman, female shaman, and she's over a brazier, and, and she's got these thongs running out from her fingers connected to a row of skeletons. <laughs> down the thing, and it's just this really bizarre scene, you know, and it's like, what is that about? And, of course, you know, it's great because he doesn't explain it. Um, you know, it's just it's, that, that makes it just a sense of wonder, uh, as opposed to when I was watching the movie, and they get to that part about the cave and the transfer, and some redneck chick behind me in the theater says, it's a Stargate. Uh, and um, yeah, <laughs> so I thought, oh boy, my. you know, all the enigma of Burroughs, you know, all the yeah. romance of Burroughs boiled down to a syndicated TV show reference. I, you know, yeah. <laughs> she got it. But anyway, Becky saw that, and the story that I have in mind will take her to Barso. And Okay, um, I need that yesterday. <laughs> and, uh, you, you needed that yesterday? 
Yes. <laughs> I want to have so already good. read it yesterday. Oh, okay, okay, great, great. Well, I uh, appreciate your enthusiasm. Uh, that uh, I thought you maybe you needed to get to Barsoom yesterday for having <laughs> I mean, a hard I'll day. Take that too. I'm not going to yeah, argue just, just, that. Yeah, just having a hard day. I wish I could get to Barsoom. It's not too <laughs> rosy there, you know. From from what I understand, um, try not I mean, to bump it into Antonio Sabatini. Rosy. There is a lot of red. Well, that I is true. Feeling that Chris's puns. That's true. And the and the and the women, you know, and everybody's naked. You know, once you get yeah. used to that, you know. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that's that sort of. So I, I was what I was saying. I had the idea that maybe uh, you know maybe Becky's trying the Aleph out uh, to reach uh, Captain Clegg on that mysterious island, and she gets on the wrong point <laughs> in space and time, and ends up okay. as far soon. Yeah, I just so, have one last yeah. comment to make before we jump over into Miracle in the. I'm sorry, Murder in the Miracle Room. And uh, that is, rereading Becky Sharp in preparation for this interview, it struck me how much I would love all of my favorite new pop authors to do a giant mass collaborative crossover novel. Like you, Josh, Renner, Josh Reynolds, Willie Melke, Nicole Petit, a few others, just combining all of their characters and things. Let that idea percolate. Let it <laughs> sink in. And while you let it sink in, Rob, I know you have some questions about Murder in the Miracle Room. Yeah, so I, I wanted to make sure that we also discussed uh, this this book. Um, it just came out, um, and we mentioned it uh, the last time you were on. Uh, but but now that it's out, can you give us a bit more information about it? What's it about? Yeah, uh, Murder in the Miracle Room uh, is a, a bit of a departure from New Pulp. Uh, however, it does deal with the same themes. Uh, that interests me uh, in in the new pulp, including the the world of the spirit, and uh, and uh, basically, you know, you could consider the main character Twyla uh, from a Eastern North Carolina town, uh, home health care technician. Uh, actually, she can be considered as an occult detective, uh, not by choice. Um, and uh, but yeah, the situation is that. Twyla, uh, my main character, um, gives you know health assistance. Uh, I guess you would say to a girl, a uh, young woman, who's astigmatic and who is in a coma, and she's in a coma because of a car accident. Uh, she still continues to bleed from her poem palms, not from her poems. Now that's an interesting story, <laughs> isn't it? I bleed from my poems. Um, but, uh, but no, she does still do it the classical way with the, uh, with the palms, I should say. And, uh, Twyla comes in and, you know, cleans up her, swabs her wounds with antibacterial and, you know, drops it off into the, um, uh, hazardous waste or, or whatever, uh, container and, uh, tends to hygiene and things like that that she needs. And then, uh, Twyla, through some circumstances, I, I I'll leave it for people to read the book to find out. Uh, she gets involved with what she believes is a Vatican attempt to ascertain whether this girl is really a, uh, you know, stigmatic or not, or if it's a, a you know, a fraud that's being perpetuated. And she comes in and finds that someone has really turned off the lights of life support uh, for this uh, 
girl, April Gurley, named April because it's the same root as apertures, which is openings and your palms if you're stigmatic. Well, that's great. Opening. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so there's April uh, dead, and Twyla becomes comes under suspicion because you know she's one of the few people who have access to her. And it turns out that Twyla's, uh, well, not her boss, but April's father, uh, is the richest man in town. And, um, you know, April has been living in a mansion, and he's turned the wing that she's in into sort of a, uh, you know, a, a living, uh, made her a living icon out of her somewhat. And people come to the mansion to pray and have uh, icons put in the room with her because once they're in her presence, they'll start, the statues will start bleeding or leaking oil or things like that. And um, so, you know, he's, uh, he's sort of, he's high profile, very much so in this very small town. And she feels something of a sense of threat by him as well, as well as her loser uncle, uh, who... <laughs> Set his, murdered his wife, set her on fire, and tried to pass it off as spontaneous combustion. Um, and uh, didn't really work out for him, uh, as, as he had hoped. Uh, Twyla refers to him as Hannibal Cracker uh, while he's in prison. Uh, but he gets out, and, uh, you know, he supposedly turned over a new leaf, but she's not, you know, trusting him either. And the authorities are putting pressure on her, and then the spirit world gets involved. And she finds out that uh, what's going on in her life, uh, what's going on um, with April's murder, that these are just almost surface things that relate to a whole other universe uh, that's coexisting side by side with her small southern town. So she's got to find the killer. There are two things I'd like you to speak on somewhat briefly since we're now barreling on towards the end of the episode. But one, the ties between this, at least in themes, between this novel and Twin Peaks and mere spirituality, which you talked about in an email to me and I thought was fascinating with how it ties into the novel. Okay. uh, Well, the the Twin Peaks thing was mostly that, that quirky town. You know, having a murder in a town of quirky people and uh, believe me, you can get that in eastern North Carolina. Uh, I mean, they're, they're true stories <laughs> of things. Uh, and, uh, one individual named Doobuddy, uh, who was apparently just incredible uh, with his feats that he could pull. Uh, and I mean, I've heard different accounts, you know, about this guy, that he stopped somebody's car by walking out in front of it, uh, that... And actually, a friend of mine was, uh, he, he works with an eye doctor. He was working with a guy who was in prison or in a jail cell with Doobuddy at one time. And he said, Doobuddy said, I'm not staying in jail. And the next thing the guy knew, Doobuddy was on the other side of the bars. And he was still inside. Uh, supposedly, he, he threw a playing card up to the ceiling of a local eatery called uh, King Chicken. And nobody could get that card to come down until Doobuddy came out and spoke to it. And then it floated down. And uh, supposedly he'd been dead, and people had been seeing him in the you know the funeral home or whatever. And then he was walking around the other the next day. Uh, and he also dropped in to do some card tricks for the kids at the elementary school. That, like I say, you know that's some weird stuff uh, going on in eastern North Carolina. Uh, oh, yeah. So I want to do that. 
<laughs> I mean, this is, you know, this is allegedly true stuff, you know. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I like that quirky town business. Uh, Tar Forks is based on Washington, North Carolina. It was the original Washington before the one up there in the District of Columbia. And um, it goes back to colonial times. Um, and, you know, it's got an atmosphere and, and, a, and, a, and a feel to it. Uh, that's where Do Buddy, for example, was uh, inhabiting uh, the area. Um, and so that was, uh, Tar Forks became, you know, my idea to, uh, to do a play, a fictional version of Washington, North Carolina, with all that quirkiness. And again, the other Twin Peaks thing, of course, is the murder. And then the idea that once you start looking into the murder, you find out that the uh, the character who's been killed was not what she all that she seen, and that's true uh, with uh, April in my book, though not in the same way as Lord Lord Palmer. Um, and you mentioned my own uh, my own spirituality. Uh, can you jog my memory and remind me what, what you um, were? You were drawing on Chesterton's concept of mere spirituality and the problems that could arise from only having a mere spirituality. Does that jog your okay. memory enough? Yeah, thank you. Thank you very, very much. Yeah, right. You know, we, we live in a time where, um, you know, people seem to just, you know, increasingly have this notion, and it's, it's really part of the postmodern paradigm that, uh, that, that either way you want to look at it, that there are no categories anymore or everything comes under the same category. Uh, the idea that it's all good. And, you know, I don't believe it's all good. <laughs> I believe that, you know, I, I certainly believe in the spirit, uh, in the world of the spirit. Uh, I'm a Christian. Uh, I've been, uh, you know, Christian, relating to the Christian faith, and, you know, for uh, my entire life, pretty much. And, uh, you know, I, I have... I've, I had my experiences. I have the testimony of, of reliable people, uh, of you know things that that you know show that yes, this is real, and that um, you know I've come to the conclusion that the reality that I and my family uh, have inhabited in the 20th and 21st century is the same one that's described in the Gospels in the Book of Acts, and the you know, of course with Christianity. Biblical Christianity, anyway, uh, you know, comes the idea that there is the devil, and that there are demons, and that there are deceiving spirits, and then things like this that are out there. And so, uh, mere spirituality is not enough. Uh, you know, your spirituality uh, needs to be focused uh, in Christ. Uh, to be merely spiritual uh, is, you know, you're, you're open. That doesn't, you know, that says nothing. And yet, you know, it also implies you're, you know, perhaps you're open to, to anything. Uh, I believe what Chesterton was saying was that, you know, it's not enough to be simply spiritual. In fact, the rest of that quotation is Chesterton says that uh, when Darwinian evolution was announced, that, you know, it was feared that it might, you know, move people to mere animality. And he said that wasn't the danger. You know, he said the danger was that it would be, uh, you know, moved into mere spirituality. It taught them to believe as long as they were passing from the ape, they were going to the angel, but you can pass from the ape and go to the devil. And uh, so I thought, well, well yeah, uh, that makes perfect sense 
to me. And um, that's exactly what's happened. Uh, you know, certainly we have in our world a, you know, a culture that is so, you know, in, into sensuality or sensuousness, whichever one of those is the negative one, and uh, physical pleasure. Uh, but people have never stopped being spiritual, you know, that is in some form, you know, whatever form that takes, that's just not going to happen. Uh, and so they've found some way to combine, uh, you know, whatever the facts of evolution are uh, with the spiritual uh, aspect of, of existence. And the idea that, you know, you're, all, that you're progressing upward, that somehow it's innate in nature, uh, that's wrong. Charles Darwin didn't believe that. Uh, the person who believed that uh, was Alfred Russell Wallace, who ends up being just a footnote, I guess, in Darwin's story. But uh, he was the guy who came up with natural selection independent of Darwin. Darwin was sitting on his work. Darwin was concerned of the effect that it would have on people, you know, when, they, when they, their worldview was challenged like this. And it didn't want stuff to come out until after he was dead. But Russell, uh, Alfred Russell Wallace sends him this paper and says, I'm not a professional. Will you look over this? And Darwin's like, this guy's coming up with my theory. You know? So they made a joint presentation to the Royal Society. But he and Wallace divided. Wallace got into the spiritualism of the age. He began to believe that physical evolution was a mechanism for psychic evolution. And he was trying to contact his dead brother and getting into the, you know, spirit rapping sort of thing and all these things going on. And uh, Darwin wrote him and told him, you know, I, I totally disagree with you on that. But a lot of people have, you know, followed Wallace thinking they're following Darwin, you know, uh, whose viewpoint is that evolution is not trying to get anywhere. Uh, but the idea that we're progressing upward, you know, ironically, that's what you see in, like, every Star Trek episode. You know, where some race, they encounter some alien race, and they begin to glow you know, at the end and totally disappear. And, oh, yes, we gave up the need for bodies eons of your human years ago. You know, oh, and right. it's that whole idea that they evolved into a higher state of, you know, non-corporal existence. But I don't think that's Darwin at all. That's Russell Wallace. And that's rooted more in Victorian seance parlors you know, than in a laboratory or the Galapagos Islands. It seems to be that Darwin would have the ideology that, um, if you want to call it that, that um, evolution just happens. There's no purpose. There's no end design. Right. Yeah, evolution is just to, uh, to survive. You know, somebody's pointed out there's, there's good and bad in Darwin, but not good and evil. Uh, you know... What's good is what helps you to survive. What's bad is what hinders survival or passing on your genes. You know, uh, morality becomes um, kind of a floating concept uh, in Darwin's scheme of things. Because with Darwin, morals evolve with everything else. You know, which means that they're still changing. Uh, that if that's true, if that were true, that um, you know what's considered good and evil now will change in the future, or could change, uh, due to evolution. Um, it's, a, it's a change. There is no fixed moral standard. But there again, to, to quote Chesterton, uh, he, was, he wrote an essay on the works of William Shakespeare, and referred to Shakespeare as a moralist, and he said he was a moralist in this sense. Uh, 
Uh, right is right, even if nobody does it. Wrong is wrong, even if everyone's wrong about it. And I love that. And it flies totally in the face, you know, again, of the postmodern uh, world in which we live. Did that in any way inspire something that I found pretty fascinating in the first chapter of your novel, um, Micah, where you were talking about basically um, the, intrins- um, the intrinsics of time? When she was talking to the Magus, it was fascinating that it seems evolution in some sense could happen in reverse. The, um, the Ayyidians... Uh, yeah. Are you talking about Becky Sharp again? Yeah, yes. Right. If, if, if the Ayyidians, if I'm pronouncing the race right, they were allegedly contacting Becky from some point in the distant past. Like the idea, time is not linear. I found that fascinating. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating concept, too. Uh, and, you know, I, I do, you know, I, I do love that. I, I don't know, uh, you know, exactly... Well, I feel from, if you were to step, uh, if you were to pass into heaven, uh, you would move outside the physical universe, and time is a product of the physical universe. So if you're outside of the universe, you're outside of time. And at that point, you know, past, present, and future uh, may look, you know, you may be able to see them happening simultaneously. Um, it's an idea that sounds very Eastern, but you actually find it in uh, Boethius, uh, in Western culture, in Boethius' Constellation of Philosophy. And in medieval times, uh, they call it the simultaneous possession of all time. So that is, a, like I said, it sounds very Eastern, but, you know, it is, it is in Western literature and philosophy as well. And to me, that's fascinating. There are just so many things that... Uh, that, that that works out uh, in, a, in, a, in a creative way for people. For example, Alan Moore's From Hell uh, is really into that. And yes. that's, uh, he does some incredible riffs on that. And also I read a great analysis of the Twin Peaks movie, Fire Walk With Me. And this guy made a really great case about the nature of time, uh, the holographic nature of time. Uh, as presented presented in the series, uh, and I guess by extension into the the film itself, uh, since that movie is a prequel, but in true David Lynch fashion, there's at least one scene in it that happens after the series. <laughs> you know, so, uh, and and you actually see the future of the series folded back on on the past of the series and. Anyway, uh, but yeah, it's it's a wonderful, incredible motion. Mm-hmm. And, and you see this personified by um, Zervan Akarana, the god of boundless time. Yeah. What what about him now? Well, I mean, uh, did you see? Um, if I'm pronouncing it right, Zervan Akarana as as the personification of this concept we talked about since Becky had that idol. Yeah. Well, he was. Uh, you know, he was. He was known. I think it was in the Mithra faith or religion, he was a figure, and uh, he uh, he represented boundless time, yeah, so yeah, that was, you know, that's why that was the calling card for, you know, the Yithians, or the great race who were moving among us mortal people, uh, you know, obviously they couldn't, you know, tell who they were while they were inhabiting other bodies, but that was, uh, you know, that was a way they could identify each other. 
and uh, to each other. And of course, Becky, uh, you know, ended up with one of those because uh, one of her lovers in Vanity Fair turns out to be possessed by the great one of the great race of yes, uh, which I'm sure Thackeray is spinning in his grave uh, if he. <laughs> I implied that, but it wasn't his idea, I'm sure. But yeah, he was the one who passed it on to her. Lord Stein. It might make Vanity Fair more palatable to you if when you read it, you think Lord Stein is an alien intelligence. Right. And, uh, yeah. That, that might I, liven things up a little. Now yeah. you know why intellectuals love your work. You, you get us thinking. Yeah, there you go. That's my goal. That's my goal. Mission, mission accomplished. You know, so, my work here is done. Yeah. So before we end, I actually wanted to talk about something that's completely non-intellectual, <laughs> um, or or maybe it is. Um, I read your review. Pancakes. Of, I read your review of Living Maddie, and um, oh, okay, <laughs> and uh, great, it, fantastic. Great. I'm glad somebody did. I put a lot of work into that. I, 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 it was so thoughtful. It was like really great review, and uh, it's funny because we spent the last hour talking about farmer and and uh, shared realities and pulp and crossovers. And um, you know, one of the things the Telling Crossover Universe believes is like um, sh- silly shows like that have a place in the same universe as Tarzan and Sherlock Holmes and stuff. Uh, right. And uh, so I was just wondering what 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 what, you, what your thoughts were on that Dis- Disney Channel shows coexisting in the same world as Tarzan and Becky Sharp and all of that. <laughs> well, uh, you know, let, let me say that I you know I, I do encourage everybody to to read my uh, Live and Maddie post on Facebook. Uh, it was episode one of While I Should Have Been Reading Proust: Misadventures right. of Popular Culture. <laughs> and uh yeah, and uh you know, I just I just really got burned with the how the way the whole uh Maddie uh and Josh and what is that other guy's name? Right, that uh, love triangle. Yeah, the the jock, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean wow, I just I mean and they had a little monitor going, you know, showing you everybody was voting for Josh and still, you know, this you know, brain dead you know, <laughs> school athlete. You know, he 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 won the day. You know, and uh, it just it just it was odd to me how much Maddie was such a more interesting character with this other guy. And then once she gets back in the presence of this other fella, you can just see her brain cells starting to drop out of her ears. You know, her her intelligence just starts you know lowering. So. Right. Um, but anyway, yeah, the love triangle. I'm, I'm interested in seeing how that how that resolves. Um, but in terms of existing in the, in the same universe, I haven't really thought about crossing Liv and Maddie over with Becky Sharp. <laughs> uh, that could be. But they did do their own crossover, uh, kind of with the Patty Duke show, right? Uh, for, you know, right, Patty Duke. Uh, and uh, of course, Patty Duke since passed away. But I noticed in one of the later episodes, uh, Maddie goes to live at her aunt's house and. There's a picture of Patty Duke, uh, an elderly Patty Duke, you know, as Grant's mother. So they've kept that thread going. Um, but uh, along those lines, you talk about the Disney stuff. Have you have you heard about those crazy theories around, you know, Frozen, and how that with one of them it ends up that Tarzan is related 
Yeah. To Elsa. Yeah. You've heard this? Yeah. To yeah. Elsa and Anna, that, that their parents would get shipwrecked and uh, have Tarzan as, as a kid. Now, the other interpretation is very ghoulish, which is it's their ship that the Little Mermaid's swimming around in. Oh. Uh, suppo- <laughs> oh. Supposedly with the bones of, you know, the parents of Anna and Elsa. <laughs> you know. Oh, my goodness. So, uh, yeah. But, yeah, there is something involved. I mean, so that some people have, you know, tried to touch Tarzan on that. Of course, that, that just doesn't work. It doesn't work. Uh, because, it doesn't work timeline wise, right? For, for the more serious Tarzan, I'm writing a cartoon crossover encyclopedia right now, which takes place in a a world where where uh, the like the books don't count, but the the cartoons do. Um, and uh-huh. in that and in that it might work because timeline is more wibbly wobbly. <laughs> uh-huh. well, it's probably well, really wobbly. Yeah, I found uh, I found a date for when Frozen was taking place, and that's oh. about five hundred years before right. Tarzan. Yeah. Right, right. Oh, really, because when right. I tried to pick a year, I ended up with like seventeen ninety to match the clothes, and also the fact firearms aren't especially prolific. Huh? Well, maybe maybe I'm wrong with that. Yeah. No, I, I just I, know I, I that think it, you might be right, Micah, because. Um, it was based on a, um, a folklore legend that dates back much, yeah. much earlier. Well, but, but there's very little relating to that, is my understanding. Right, loosely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just, you know, yeah, it's, it's, so it's practically its own story. But i tell you what, I will try to check it out and shoot you an email, because I, I've, I've got the Art of Frozen book. Yes, my really girly side is coming out, isn't it? Right. That, I find living Maddie and Frozen are, are two things. It's great. Really I, yeah, you should get tend, you on for an old Disney episode. I tend to yeah, embrace, yeah. I tend to embrace the ten-year-old girl inside of me too. Sometimes, but but to, but to live to leaven that up, I do have some commissions of some sexy Elsa pictures that a ten-year-old girl would be interested in. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, that, uh, but I've got a book, you know, I think that I've read that in for what they were, it kind of sets it in time. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, so, it uh, definitely doesn't work in a normal timeline, Frozen and Tarzan. But, um, but Disney tends to have this weird, um, all the fairy tales take place at the same time. It's thing. basically David Lynchian in how yeah, yeah. the timeline works. Yeah. Everything's we're, at we're, once, but also not. And sometimes it's on different worlds, and sometimes it's the same world. Well, you know that uh, that Rapunzel's briefly seen in Frozen, right? Right, yes. right, yeah, right. And and also supposedly the princess from the the Frog Prince is supposed to be there. I've heard. Oh, uh, the, oh, I haven't heard that. Suppo- one. Yeah, and supposedly it was uh, Rapunzel's wedding that Elsa and Anna's parents were going to when the ship went down, and and thanks a lot, Rapunzel. You know? <laughs> I love getting that we, married during tropical getting married during tropical storm season or whatever you know. I love <laughs> that we started with Vanity Fair and ended with Frozen. <laughs> yeah, we, we've we've covered the gamut, right? Yeah, we, we we've got we've got the gamut. Will it all interconnect? You know? So um, before we wrap up, um, are there any other projects, past, present, or, or future that you want to throw out a quick plug for? Well, I'm currently working on my. Um, a story for the next Tales of the Shadow Man. 
which uh, it turns out to be a prequel to Jean Ray's Mal Pertwee or Mal Pertwee's um, novel. Jean Ray is considered the, you know, the H.P. Lovecraft of France or Belgium or whatever, and um, he uh, he wrote this this book. This has an incredible concept uh, to it, and uh, really bizarre. And uh, I wrote it up, and uh, or I brought it up, and I'm having a real good time in it uh, with it. Uh, it actually also touches on the great God Pan, which my uh, uh, slouching for Kamala Dunham, uh, Dunham, that Becky Sharp novella, uh, also deals with. So you know, there's a potential future crossover for there, Robert. Uh, oh. One in the making. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, but it does cross over genre, genre uh, with um, uh, the author of the Great God, Arthur Machen, and also uh, the Marquis de Sade and uh, Mister Vampire. Uh, the, okay. And the Blind Dead. Okay. Uh, the, the the Knights Templar that are yep. corpses that are running around on horseback. You familiar with that series of movies? I, I I'm not, but I'm intrigued. <laughs> yeah, or Mister or Mister Vampire, the the hopping vampires out of China. Oh, you need to get a copy. Oh, get... I I think I know what you're talking about now. I'm gonna have to look that up. But uh, yeah, it's I... a fun movie if you see the first one. There's apparently a whole series. So so all that ties in uh, in in this story, which I'm I'm really excited about, and may be kind of controversial. Uh, I, I'm almost, uh, to tell you the truth, I'm wondering if it will get through uncut. Um, Is it so controversial yeah, that high school principals will be scandalized? <laughs> yeah, there you, there you go. That's my nice goal. Like James well, got but, uh, <laughs> but the uh, But the Marquis de Sade. Uh, like for I the busty. That, 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 that element that element comes in, like I said, and uh but not in the way that you may be thinking with, with the side. But anyway, we'll see. Um uh, but you know, if that happens it, it's something that can be resolved and you know, I'll make sure you guys get to read it uncut if you're interested. Uh, so, uh, okay, great. So I'm so I'm working on that now, uh for my my fairy tale mini series comics project with Richard Case. Uh, the character sketches have been approved, and uh, I'm, uh, you know, waiting for him to come back with uh, some uh, thumbnails or breakdowns on the pages for the pitch. And, uh, he, yeah, he plans to do some coloring on it, too, and he, he can, Richard's capable of this exquisite coloring and uh, very suited for the fairy tale genre. And, um, I'm, you know, I'm hoping that will all all work out. Um, so that uh, that's something that I've mentioned before that's coming up. And also, uh, James, you know, I, I mentioned to you, I, I hope you remember uh, the possibility of, of doing a book. Yes. Uh, for your company, right. And so yeah. that's actually right now getting actually stepped up. Excellent. And, uh, yeah, so, and you guys, I know you're going to love this. It looks like Karnacki is going to be there. Woohoo! Excellent. Yeah. Are you going yeah. to kill him too? I don't want to kill him. I don't want to kill Karnacki. Why do people want to kill Karnacki? 
I don't know, know but like six like, different he, authors have knocked him off. Does he, does he just annoy everybody with his parlor stories? I mean, <laughs> someone's got to shut this guy up, you know? <laughs> killed for my puns yet. I don't think he, Karnacki would be killed for his parlor stories. Well, <laughs> anyway... Uh, he, he's actually perhaps he's actually perhaps going to have some influence on the story I'm doing now for Tales of the Shadow Man, but uh, not in reference to him exactly, but to the story about the hog or the pig or right. whatever. Well, yeah, I'm I'm reading that now, and I understand it's supposed to be pretty unnerving. So, uh, does it does it cross over with Evil Speak with Clint Howard by any chance? No, but it does cross over with Hodgson's short novel, The House on the Borderlands. That's what I've heard. Do, do you see the creature in that? Yes. It doesn't okay, have great, the largest role, but it does give you a good idea for what the hog's actually trying to do in the Karnacki story. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. I've got the Richard Corbin illustrated version of that somewhere. So I hope he captured the, um, you know, at least a panel of the, the hog. sequence of its... The sequence where it's directly involved is so striking that I can't imagine he wouldn't where certain old gods from Earth, their statues crumble, and it's revealed what people have actually been worshipping are manifestations of the hog. Oh, great. That's right in line with what I'm doing for Tales of the Shadow Man now. That's really in line. What do you know? And I didn't even know it. Yeah, yeah, I really gotta, gotta look, uh, gotta look into to that. Um, so, yeah, so, but anyway, those our projects. Oh, I also have a uh, an artist uh, who goes by the name of Buzz that I'm going to be doing. Uh, he's doing the pitch pages for me anyway. It's just a couple pitch pages, pages. Uh, but it is uh, well. I've got a mini series written with this. It's more serious. This is a little two page thing for the pitch. It's kind of humorous, but. Uh, Basically, it's my homage to the horror comics of the early 70s. Uh, when I was a kid, the comics code had just relaxed, and so we started getting Werewolf by Night and Man-Thing and Tomb of Dracula, and also there were the horror magazines that Marvel started putting out that rivaled the Warren magazines. Uh, and so I was really into that. You know, as a 10-year-old, 12-year-old, I like monsters, I like superheroes and comics. This is great. Um and so I have a real soft spot uh, for the black and white horror of the Warren magazines of the period and, uh, and their, you know, their rivals. And so I'm wanting to do a homage to that. Uh, and uh, so we've got a two-page uh, little thing there that I want to be pitching around uh, involving a, a pimp 1970 zombie known as Superfly Zombie T. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. Tito LeMay, shot down by the law, raised by the Loa. He's the antagonist. Uh, but I'm keeping mum on, on the heroines in it. Uh, oh. But the heroines in it, uh, who, are, who are combating Tito. Uh, but Dracula's in it, too. You know? It's a full okay. two pages. Yeah, it's all, but it's all, two pages and maybe five panels. And you are not wasting time. So that's right. Yeah, get on with it. That's what I say. When there's vampires and you know super pimp zombies to be had. Right, right. So uh, the final question is: uh, Where can our listeners follow you on social media? Uh, 
look for me on Facebook. Um, and uh, while I do not have a, unfortunately, a uh, up-to-date website, uh, I really need to get that uh, going. Uh, and uh, but you know I'm not very computer savvy, uh, but that would be neat. Uh, maybe my uh, why I should have been reading Proust columns would work better. <laughs> right <laughs> on a blog for rather than face because you know if I, and by the way there is an episode two of that uh, you might want to look for which oh, I, I, I go yeah I go into what defines a bad movie. Uh, in fact, I did a uh, a um, a uh, not uh, oh shoot William James. Uh, knock off the varieties of bad movie experiences, and um, so uh, you know it gets into the to the notion that you can't just say a movie's a bad movie anymore because there's so many different ways a movie can be bad, and some of them are actually enjoyable, and some are terrible. You know, and um, you know one of the worst offenders is a guy who's you know, won an Oscar <laughs> before. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know. Ed Wood's more entertaining than this guy, yeah. you know, and and uh, so so anyway, yeah, check it out, um, and I, and I'll be following that up with one on the cinema of Neil Breen. Oh, uh, please! With, oh, Neil Breen, you know Neil Breen? I know him. I'm excited. He for is this. he is incredible. This guy, I I mean, wow, he comes up with stuff that. Things that you, if you imagined them, you wouldn't dare speak them. But not only does he imagine, he puts them on the big screen. You know, zero <laughs> for everybody. And uh, yeah, he's just uh, he he has perfected the art of the vanity project. I have to say, yes, <laughs> that's the perfect way to describe him. <laughs> and he's got a new vanity. one out. All the way. He's down. got a new one out. Yeah, in which he's uh, coming back as an android or something to tell <laughs> the Earth we failed miserably, um, which was the theme of an earlier movie. I am here for ellipses now, not three ellipses for ellipses <laughs> now. And he actually touches on some of the same themes as really Scott and Prometheus, and I think Neil Breen's version is actually a little more entertaining than the really Scott version. All right. Well, thanks for. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, Micah, and uh, we hope to have you on for a fourth time real soon. Uh, I hope so, too. Just say when. You're part of the family now. <laughs> That's great to know, guys. I enjoy talking with you. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, so we'll be right back after this commercial break. Before we wrap up, I just want to mention uh, this was one of our longer episodes, I know, but... Um, Micah is so wonderful to hear and listen to, um, you know, that uh, we just kept asking him questions. We love him. And, uh, and probably the next time he comes on, it'll be a long one, too, because uh, he's earned the right to have long episodes because he's just wonderful as a guest. Um, uh, and I got to say, uh, this is the first episode where I was, like, taking notes during the whole interview. Uh, <laughs> he kept mentioning things that I just like, oh, I want to look at that and I want to do that and uh yeah so um yeah um anyways so join us next week uh we'll be joined by actress and producer felissa rose and before we end i want to thank our sponsor the bluth company and a special thanks to tiny white and the deadites for our show's theme music leap on a stream thanks to all who listened remember to subscribe to and rate our show on itunes and as always 
everything happens somewhere. Good night. <laughs>